Vera Payne. When it comes to the NBA, the players are not the only thing that makes the game exciting. Team dynasties drive the game. Author and lead columnist at The Athletic, Marcus Thompson, explains what defines a dynasty and how they shape the NBA. Thanks for joining me, Marcus. I'm very happy to be here. I appreciate you taking the time and having me on. I actually read your book and I love it, but why did you decide to write about NBA dynasties? The inspiration behind it and what motivated me to write it was you know, I went through the Warriors dynasty and, you know, I was right there for it, covering the Warriors. And the, the conversation around the Warriors was how bad they were for basketball. And I just thought that was so wild. Like, you know, obviously they were going to win. They were a juggernaut. They had Kevin Durant and everybody said this was so bad. So I wanted to highlight how this was actually pretty good and this is how the NBA works. So throughout your research, what did you find defines a dynasty? So for me, I decided to create some criteria one would be you just had to be like wildly successful. You had to win at a level that was even greater than good teams. It had to be something unique about how much they won. Number two, I went with they had to evolve the game. Because this dynasty existed, the game changed and it wouldn't be the same. And they would leave an imprint on how they played basketball and how they approached basketball that would, you know, just reverberate into the future. I did give some extra bonus points for the cultural impact for teams that like left their imprint on society and culture. I gave another set of bonus points for teams that we just can't forget about for one reason or another. We keep talking about them. You know, they, they remain in our psyche. So they just have some type of magnetism about them that no, no matter what, we keep bringing them up. We keep, we keep talking about them. We love them. So to me, I gave some weight to that. And once you put those four together, it made it a little bit easier to decide who should make the book, but it still was difficult. So how far back did you go throughout the history of the NBA? Like, did you go all the way to the creation or was it just when it became relevant? Even before. I went back before the NBA. I went back to the origins of basketball when James Naismith created it. You know, it's funny. I, you learn a lot about it to like that route and one of the things that I learned was how pro basketball wasn't even really taken serious like it was kind of a joke like people cared about college basketball and they actually cared about AAU basketball but pro basketball had a hard time finding its footing one of the reasons is you know they played in cages and the reason is when Naismith created the rules when the ball went out of bounds the, the team that got the ball was the was the team that was able to get it, right? You had to go out a bounds. You had to go get the ball. So you would have these players kind of fighting for the ball. It was like rough and tumble. They would be in the audience, right? They would be in the crowd fighting for the ball. So what they did was they put up cages so it would prevent the delay of game and the kind of the messiness of players going into the crowd. So then they became known as cagers. So back then, hey, the cagers are playing. They were talking about basketball. And then it was kind of more like a WWE. They were like wrestling. It was physical. It wasn't wasn't about athleticism or beauty. It was just, it was kind of rough. So it grew from that. That's how you know the significance of the Minneapolis Lakers because they made pro basketball viable. George Mikan was such a spectacle, this big seven-foot dude, which nobody had seen before. Like he was a draw. And suddenly you got people paying attention to pro basketball because of George Mikan, and eventually he ends up on the Lakers. 
So the origins of the NBA, and keep in mind, there were a lot of leagues that tried to start that didn't make it because they just couldn't fund it. They were playing in YMCA's and high school gyms. But Mike, it was a draw. He was a big enough draw that the league he was in was able to survive. And that league ended up becoming the, the NBA. So, yeah, I went back to the beginning. Uh, it was so fun, too. I loved learning about that stuff. Yeah, I read the part about Mike, and, and I thought what was so interesting, because it blew my mind, that there was a period in time where basketball wasn't significant. And it was very hard right. for me to wrap my mind around that, because for as long as I've lived, basketball has meant a lot, whether you were young or old, especially when you're young, you no matter how tall you are, you want to be like Michael Jordan. So I didn't grow up without basketball. It was a strange thing to read, definitely. Oh, man, it was so strange to read about. The interesting part was they were playing these cages and fans would like poke players through the fence and like burn them with cigarettes. And I'm like, what in the world was this? Like, what kind of mess is this? This is crazy. Like, to think the the league that's so graceful and beautiful, right, and it's athletic, and, like, it's just, to think that that's what it was, it was basically wrestling in a cage. <laughs> it was wild to me, but it, it just shows you. The, the NBA is a really young league, and basketball is a relatively young sport. doesn't have the elongated history of baseball or even football. It's really come a long way in a short time. How many teams did you determine were dynasty material? The project was to pick the 10 teams. I had to find 10. I had to choose 10. And that was a nice round number. So that was difficult because there are clearly more than 10 like great teams, symbolic teams. But the arduous task was narrowing it down. So I got to know, in your opinion, how important is coaching to a dynasty? Excellent question. I actually think it's huge. And all of the the dynasties have like these super, super big figures, especially back in the day, because the coach was all powerful in many ways. And that kind of began with a red Auerbach, who was the orchestrator of it all. But the coach is usually the one who creates the philosophy that kind of maximizes the team. And that was the difference maker. You know, a lot of teams have really good players, but in many ways in basketball, as you know, like it's it's about the system you run, it's the style of play, it's the personality of the team, and that's as important as the talent, right? Like, you know, the Lakers, they had a, a specific style of play, and that style was fostered. They had to be, like, learned. So you get new players, and you got to figure out how to make it work. So then you get a post-up guy like Kareem come. How do you get him into this up-in-court style? And Boston was the opposite, right? So to me, the coaches became the personality of the team, and that team ended up taking on that personality and infiltrating you know, it into how they play, to how they reflect society, to how they interact with fans. So, yeah, coaches are huge. That's why all these dynasties have this unique figure as a coach, from you know Red Auerbach to Chuck Daly, right, to <laughs> – to Phil Jackson, right, Greg Popovich, you always find this dominating, like, unique figure who's head the dynasty. Now, one of the things that I read in your book was how the NBA really wants players to be a personality. You know, you can see their face. They're more marketable, the charisma. And because of that, there's more intimacy with fans. But do you think that a polarizing personality of a player affects a dynasty's reputation? Yeah, it actually helps in many ways. 
one of the conclusions I made in this book is that the NBA peaks when there's a lot of people that love a team and a particular player and a lot of people that hate a team and a particular player. Like, that's the peak. And that's where dynasties take the NBA to. It also doesn't matter if the player is actually lovable or hateable, but <laughs> as long as people don't like them, right? Like, Boston, the Northeast, they hated Magic Johnson. They just hated him. So it doesn't matter if he was indeed polarizing. They just didn't like him anyway. And part of their fervor against him fueled the rivalry and the intensity, which attracted so many people. It attracts casual fans, right? It attracts people who don't have a dog in a fight like me. I'm from Oakland. The words were terrible. I was all in the Lakers Celtics rivalry. I didn't have a dog in a fight. But the venom between the two, the intensity was appealing. So then when you get actually polarizing guys like Isaiah Thomas, it kind of only helps that because you got two crowds now. You got the crowd that wants to see them succeed. You got the crowd that wants to see them fail. And it kind of creates the powder keg that blows the league up. And every time it happens, the league blows up because of it and becomes this kind of consuming top-level sport. So to me, yeah, it's great. It ends up being great. Michael Jordan tried his best not to tried to, to, you know, commercialize and vanilla himself so he could always be marketable. And he ended up hugely polarizing, right? And it was great because you had these people who loved him to death and then you had people who couldn't stand him and wanted to see him fail. And it ended up being great for the league. Oh, I can see what you're saying. I stopped watching basketball after the Bulls dynasty. I think like in 99, I just stopped watching because it just wasn't fun anymore for me. But I came back when Golden State Warriors were really starting to gear up. And I was like, who are these guys? I did like the polarizing effect. You either love them or you hate them. <laughs> right. And that, and my, I use my wife as the barometer in many ways because she's not a sports fan. But sometimes it's just so magnetic. She's in. Right. She's just all in. And she's like right there into it. I'm like, look at you. But that's what dynasties do. They just draw. They're so great. They're so dynamic. They're so magnetic that they just draw. To me, it's just most intense when you have, they draw people who don't like them too. That's that's what it's all about. And because, like you said, basketball players, there's only five of them per team. There's not that many of them. They're highly visible. They're central. They're, they control the action, right? It's not like they're an offensive lineman where they do this one thing and it may not be visible and it may be. Everything basketball players do, you can see it. Because of that, there is this intimacy. And because of that, now you bring in these cultural elements, right? You bring in these societal elements. We know that the Celtics-Lakers rivalry was about Magic and Bird and about two great teams going against each other. But it was also about cultural rivalry, right? It was the Northeast and the Hollywood. It was black and white, right? It was fluid and blue collar. Like, those elements are at play when it comes to basketball, NBA, because the players are so personal and we can connect to them in that way. So, yeah, it just becomes so great. That's why dynasties are important. That's why they're necessary. And that's why the NBA is where it is, because dynasties, they can pull people like you back into the sport. You have, you give up. You were done. And then Steph Curry lured you back in. Now, in your book, you say dynasties are the innovators of play. And I can actually see that with the Warriors. They were always doing the three shots. Bam, you can always get that in. So everybody else tried to mimic what they were doing. But can you give a breakdown for what the other styles of each dynasty had? So Minneapolis Lakers, begin with them, they had the first big man. Like basketball was played by shorter players back then. 
It was about being quick with your feet, moving the ball, and uh, lots of passing uh, until Mikey comes along and says, and it shows like, yo, if this guy's closer to the rim, it's probably easier, <laughs> and it works. So he ushered in the big man, and after that, it became this quest, perennial quest to find size, right? So that's them. The Boston Celtics, they invented six-man. They invented transition offense. They included black players in a way that hadn't been done yet. They, they drafted the first black player. They made Bill Russell the first black coach. They had the first all-black starting five. And so the way we talk about transition offense, like Steph Curry pulling up for three to transition, that began with the Russell Celtics. Sixth man of the year, that began with the Russell Celtics. You know, things like that. Then you fast forward to Magic and Showtime. They took fast breaking and popularized it. And the league had really slowed down after the Celtics days because the Celtics were kind of an anomaly, but they slowed it down. And the Lakers brought the speed back as a way of competing, as a way of standing out. So they popularized the fast break. And another thing they did, they introduced the big point guard, right? You don't see the 6'9 point guard before Magic Johnson. <laughs> and now there's nothing better than a big point guard. From Penny Hardaway, Sean Livingston, like, you know, these tall guys who can run point, that's what, that's what teams love now. Then you go to the Celtics, right? Culturally, the Celtics really kind of brought white, white guys back into basketball because after the Russell Celtics, you know, the black players refused to send the game and it became a league dominated by black guys. But the Larry Bird Celtics, Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Danny Ainge, those guys, they essentially showed that basketball is for everybody, that you didn't have to just jump that high. Everybody can participate in this. And a lot of the black players, a lot of the fans grew a respect and appreciation for a different style of basketball. So we definitely found more unity in that and which paved the way for all kinds of stuff later down the line that we can attribute to that. But also the value of shooting, right? The value of outside shooting is emphasized by Larry Bird, right? The value of great post play and post moves and footwork with your big man, Kevin McHale, right? Robert Parrish. This is what the, the Celtics brought out. Obviously the bad boy Pistons was about defense, right? <laughs> Physicality. And then, you know, you got Jordan, this concept that you can build a team around a guard instead of a big man, which hadn't kind of happened before. Even the Celtics were led by Larry Bird, but they didn't get good until they got Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale. It's tough to name a big man from the Bulls, right? Like Luke Longley, James Cartwright, they weren't even all-stars. But they built that team around on the perimeter and on the wing, and they made the scoring guard preeminent and that's something we didn't see before and that paves the way for the Kobe's for the Dwayne Wade for the LeBron James where it's like okay you don't necessarily have to have size in the front court you can run this thing from the perimeter I do think that's important now you fast forward to the Lakers to the Kobe Shaq Lakers and then you got the best of both worlds you got the size the inside out game the ability to dump the ball inside and the triangle offense and work it outside to the shooters and the perimeters. So they had the balance of the both with two unique stars. That They were one of the most unique dynasties. That takes you to the Spurs, who really rubbed up the international game. They were finding these gyms overseas and made everybody step up their scouting game. And so now you see this influx of international stars, right? Luka Doncic, Giannis Antetokounmpo. You can attribute that to how serious the Spurs took international scouting and it made everybody take it serious 
And then the Spurs really leaned into the three-point shooting. Even though Greg Popovich hated it, they leaned in. They became a really good three-point shooting team and incorporated that. And the Spurs were the impetus for the Warriors, right? A lot of what the Warriors did, they looked at the Spurs and kind of one-upped it. So while the Spurs prioritized perimeter shooting and spreading the floor and opening space up so they can, you know, give Tim Duncan room, the Warriors took it to another level with the two greatest shooters of all time. So you can kind of see, and now the Warriors ended up going with five essentially perimeter players building off of, the Spurs model, but doing it with shooting all over the court. So each of these teams like had a role in evolving the game, but also they're in the many ways they're interconnected. They're building on what the previous dynasty did, which is why we should probably appreciate them more than tear them down. So I have to ask, who's your favorite dynasty? Jordan's Bulls. I'm sorry, I was I was 15 years old. I was wearing Jordans and watching Come Fly With Me VHS tapes and baggy shorts. And I had my knee pad down to my calf like Jordan. <laughs> I was all in. That was such an emotional and personal time for me. Like, that mattered to me. Obviously, I'm not from Chicago. The way Jordan captivated my community and my culture, like, it sucked us into the NBA. So it doesn't even really matter to me about the logic or the, the debate. This is a personal thing. Michael Jordan was my adolescence, the Bulls was my coming of age. So they will always be personal for me. I think that's for many people. I think people just don't realize how important Jordan was to really blow up the NBA and to really solidify what we have now. Absolutely amazing player. Watching those games live have stuck with me forever. And even the championships, when they would win, everybody knew to stay inside. It was right? the, it was the best of times, best of times. But when it comes to then to now, I can't help but to think how different it would have been if the players were more involved with people. And I think of the social media, how now players can interact with fans more intimately, way more than any other time. Do you think that affects players and also the dynasties they're a part of? Yeah, I think it does, actually. I'm not even sure it's good. <laughs> The, the, there was a healthy distance back then. I mean, watching Last Dance, you could see just how media as the middleman between the fans and the players was overwhelming for him. And that wasn't even a direct relationship with the fans. That was just the media representing the fans. And now you still have that media element and also you have fans. And we could see in Kevin Durant how that is an overwhelming thing. You can see the impact on players and their happiness and and how they execute, right? You can see them being kind of moved and governed even in the slightest sense by what people are saying and how they're doing. Uh, like So I, I'm not sure it's a good thing, but yes, you're right. It's a completely different monster that nobody had to deal with. They make a decision, they get to hear directly from the masses about it in a way that never was before. So that that not only increases the praise, but it definitely increases the consequences or the jeers or the negativity. And it requires a whole different level of mental health in that sense, right? Like Jordan was stuck in his room because he couldn't avoid the media. What in the world would life be like for him on social media? <laughs> it would be insane. What are your thoughts about the current NBA season? Are you just as excited about it as me? Oh, yeah, this is great. Uh, I, I love it. 
we have a couple of potential dynasties brewing, right? Milwaukee is in position to do something special. And I still feel like Brooklyn, if Kyrie ever returns, is probably the most talented team. Uh, obviously, the Warriors have entered into the fray and have a chance to kind of revisit their glory. Like, yeah, I, I love the mix of people we know and experience we've seen, like the Kevin Durant, the Steph Currys, and LeBron James, right? The people we just know how they roll and how great they are, and we get to look forward to their greatness. But then we also have this young crop, the Devin Bookers, the John ja Morants, right, who will have something to say about it. And we're kind of in this sweet spot where we get, you know, this transition in the middle of it. It hasn't fully happened yet, but it's coming. And some of the coming players are getting good enough to take over, but the former stars aren't old enough to where they're ready to yield. So to me, it's a, it's a great sweet spot. We get the best of both worlds right now. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I'm really excited about the Bulls because now we have Caruso and it's just popping. I absolutely love it. I mean, everybody on that team is doing so well right now. And I hope Kyrie doesn't come back because then I'm not going to have any hope for my Bulls. <laughs> right. I mean, the Bulls are nice, though. That's one of my sleeper teams. They better not get too good because people are sorry. But right now, I watch every Bulls game. I love that team. I think Zach Levine is about to become a superstar. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Every single person on that team is just on fire right now. And I just love the cohesiveness that they have. And it's amazing. I, I haven't felt this excited since Derrick Rose. And I'm like, I hope nobody gets injured, you know, knock on wood, that everybody's going to be nice and healthy and that they'll be able to take it really far. It'll be exciting to see, definitely. No question. I'm all in on the Bulls. I think they're going to end up with a top, top four seed maybe five, but I think that's a scary team. I think Caruso was a great addition. Caruso, Lonzo Ball, and Zach Levine, who was clearly with a new level of determination and understanding after Tokyo, I think they can now play a little bit of defense on the perimeter. I do think that's going to make a difference. We know they can score, but the question is, can they defend? They got plenty of scores. I think they'll be able to defend enough to be a problem for the team, so you're going to have a great year. You're going to have a great time with the Bulls this year. I can almost guarantee that. That's my squad in the heat. Well, Marcus, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you being here. And for those listening, where can they find more information about you and your book? I, I always encourage people to go check out their local bookstore and support the local community, especially independent bookstores. They really could use our support, especially coming out of the pandemic. But obviously, Amazon is a great place to go, Barnes & Noble's. Anywhere you buy books, you can check out Dynasties. It is a great gift. It is a beautiful book. The illustrations by Yu Ming Huang are gorgeous. It adds another element. It's great for like a coffee table or collector's item. I encourage you to find a young NBA fan and, and put it in their hands. It's a great Christmas gift that way or a great gift because it's not so cheap that you look like a cheapskate for getting it. And it's not so expensive that you can't do it. So it's kind of that perfect sweet spot. But it's a great thing for young people to read. I've already gotten a lot of messages from people who have the book and saying their kids are taking it and they haven't seen it because their kids can't let it go. So find some young people to give it to. If you want to check me out, I'm at The Athletic and all my work can be found at theathletic.com. And you can find me on all social medias at Thompson Scribe. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing how far your bulls go. This has been the Mason Vera Payne Show. Thanks for listening. 
Can't wait to hear more? Head to WGNRadio.com for exclusive content by Mason. Also, follow Mason on Facebook and Twitter at Mason Vera Payne, that's all one word, and don't forget to share the show with your friends. 